For everyone with an interest in NASH or more broadly, fatty liver disease, Surf's Up, Season 2, Episode 45 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami starts now. This week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. One of the things that I find interesting about medicine is that before you can have a diagnosis, you have to have an intent to diagnose. And with NASH today, we don't intend to diagnose it until it's really pretty bad. I'm an eager reader of studies like this, uh, and I just find it extremely interesting that that it shows that maybe we're understating the problem and not overstating it. Mm -hmm. The whole argument healthcare now is if we find it, we've got to treat it. And if we find it, it's going to overwhelm the healthcare systems. The easel guidelines is a real milestone in recognizing that non-invasive diagnostics really are and should be the standard of care in NASH with some provisos still as we continue to develop the evidence and develop the technologies. A global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell and pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green as they interview patients and patient advocates Wayne Eskridge of the Fatty Liver Foundation, Anthony Villiotti of Nash Knowledge, and Donna Cryer of the Global Liver Institute as each one identifies what they consider the most important issues of the last few months. This week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This past week's episode plan fell victim to my stomach virus early in the week and to the horrendous storm that hit our area starting last Wednesday. Lucky for us, our condo suffered no water damage, nor did we lose power for more than 15 minutes. However, we had to relocate all our possessions and cars a couple of times, housed a friend along with our four bicycles and assorted other paraphernalia in our cozy condo for a while, and helped out in several other ways as neighbors dug out, dried out, and in some cases, tried to salvage what precious little they could from their severely flooded homes. Some of the stories were just horrible. All this left little or no time to organize our podcast, so we took the original plan, one week of wrap-up interviews, and distributed it over two weeks. This week, we asked all of our favorite patients slash patient advocates to pick one recent set of data or news they found pivotal and to share it with Louise, our favorite non-patient patient advocate, and me. Tony Villiotti of Nash Knowledge discussed two papers suggesting that disease prevalence might be far greater and patient awareness far lower than is commonly estimated. Wayne Eskridge of the Fatty Liver Foundation shared his enthusiasm about Siemens recently receiving approval in the U.S. for ELF as a prognostic test regarding cirrhosis. Finally, Donna Cryer joined me for a one-on-one discussion of a range of beyond-the-biopsy advances this summer. Each conversation ran at least 25 minutes. We've cut them down somewhat for this main episode, and we'll release each in full as a conversation over the weekend. So, as I say at the end of the conversation, sit back, listen, enjoy, and think about what these folks have to say. First, Anthony Villiotti joins Louise and Roger to discuss new prevalence data. Louise and I are here with uh, Tony Villiotti from National Knowledge. Tony, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Roger. Thank you. Tony and I are commiserating in that we live at different ends of the state of Pennsylvania, which is kind of a mid-sized state by U.S. standards for those of you who are not in the U.S. Our areas were both damaged by the flooding that resulted from the hurricane this week, but fortunately, we both uh, emerged pretty much intact despite having seen problems a mile or two from where we lived. Tony, any residual damage there today, or is it all over in Pittsburgh? 
basements. No, it seems to be all, all over. I'm sure there are people still cleaning out their basements and so forth, but uh, but for the bulk of us, it's kind of yesterday's news at this stage. It took me four different passes of roads to find a clear path to the place where I'm working from today. On this side of the state, there's still a bunch going on. We have Louise with us for this conversation as well. Hey, Louise, how are you? Good evening. I'm fine, thank you. Looks bright and sunny where you are. It is very bright and sunny where I am, so um, that's going to be a good sign for the weekend. That's a window look I've not seen before that I'm aware of. Where are you exactly right now? Um, I'm in the Hamble, which is a marina down on the south coast by Portsmouth. It's a very nice location. So are you on a boat? I am on a boat. Th- that's what I was going to say. It looks like you're on a boat. It is. It's quite a pleasant way to spend a weekend for my birthday. When is your birthday? It's tomorrow. So this is the last bit of work I'm doing before I hit another year milestone. <laughs> well, uh, ha- ha- happy birthday. And Thank you. 32, lo- 32 looks good on you, Louise. Yeah, 32 again. <laughs> With that, let's turn to Tony. So, Tony, the subject that you wanted to talk about today for a couple of major studies around prevalence and awareness within the U.S. population. Tony, um, the floor is yours. Share with us what you you think we should be discussing today. Yeah, the the two things, my background is is to be very analytic about things and number-oriented. And while we talk about the prevalence of NASH and NAFLD, there were two articles that, that came out recently that really caught my attention and struck me as being very important as evidence to the, what I've, I've long believed, that there, there is a lack of awareness of this whole, whole situation. The first article was a prospective evaluation of the prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and steatohepatitis in a large middle-aged U.S. cohort. That was a study done by Stephen Harrison and uh, some of his associates. The second article was one that was, was published in Hepatology Communications that was titled Poor Awareness of, of Liver Disease Among Adults with NAFLD in the United States. And the, the articles pretty much reach similar conclusions and present the same evidence. And that is that, you know, in the first article of prospective evaluation, of the people they studied, which was a middle-aged cohort of adults in, in Texas, I believe, that about 38% of those have NAFLD and about 14% have NASH. You have to allow for the fact that it's middle-aged, doesn't include all age groups, but that's at least consistent and maybe higher than what we had been led to believe. Yeah, particularly the NASH component. Typically here numbers like uh, 20 to 25% of the people with NAFLD have NASH. In this case, more than a third of the people with NAFLD had NASH. So that, that was the first article. The second article, yeah, what, yeah, my, my biggest takeaway from that article was how many people that have NAFLD don't know they have it. And the population they studied showed that only about 6% of the people that have NAFLD know that they have it. And that very somewhat by age group. These, these were adults. The, the younger age group, people in their 20s had no awareness that they had, had NAFLD, but it didn't get any greater than, I think, 8% or so, even even in the older age group. So those those two together, in my mind, were kind of a one-two punch you know, that really appealed to someone like me who is focused on this lack of awareness, just because you know, I think you know, the more you convey through evidence of this lack of awareness, the further along we're going to be. Tony, thanks for that. That's a great summary of, of those two papers. One of the things that struck me that you didn't mention, but I think it's interesting, is that the 38% number in the Harrison paper, the number in the other paper, which came out of NHANES, the NHANES population database, which is huge and widely used, was, I think, a shade under 37, maybe 36.8%. So the numbers that I think you hear bandied about are the 25% of the population has NAFLD and 25% of those have NASH. Well, both of these papers suggest that that number 25 might be low by as much as 50%. As you point out correctly, Stephen's paper suggests 
that a third of those have NASH. And as you also point out in the NHANES study, virtually nobody knew it. Exactly. And the other point about the, the about the Harrison paper is that all those folks were being evaluated for normal colon cancer screen, and then asked if they wanted to get information about their liver while they were in there. So in that population, nobody knew they had liver disease. The commonality of those two data sets really struck me, given how different the sources that they came from. I felt the same, Roger. I'm an eager reader of the studies like this, uh, and I just found it extremely interesting that, that, that it shows that maybe we're understating the problem, not overstating it. Mm-hmm. So, Louise, I'm not familiar with any similar literature done outside the U.S. Are you familiar? I, I'm just asking, are you familiar with any studies like that done other places in the world? Not that I can think of off the top of my head. And to be fair, if there was going to be one, it would be Jeff Lazarus or Jean, someone like that, to do an epidemiology. And I know they've done a large European review, but whether or not that went into sort of the intent numbers. I think we're all familiar with just quoting one in four of the global population have it. What do we base that on? I'm not 100% familiar with exactly where that data comes from, but I know Zabir Yanossi has used those figures and he seems to be one of the um, certainly the gurus of the epidemiology and that endpoint. If we start looking in bespoke populations like Stevens, it does appear to be higher. If I look in the populations that I've looked at, it does appear to be higher in people who just present lack of knowledge, lack of awareness. And I think Tony's absolutely correct. It's this lack of awareness that is going to lead to the continued avoidance and ignorance of something that's potentially so damaging. So watching the two of you talk to each other about this is a little bit like watching the the choir master and the uh, preacher at the same time. But I'm going to encourage that anyway. It's kind of hard to tease these apart, but I see three challenges conveyed by those numbers. One is making people more aware that they need to be tested. A second is making healthcare professionals more aware that they need to test. And then a third is to make sure that if that testing yields greater knowledge, as we expect it would, that gets translated into some kind of call for action. How would you tackle the first two? Or how do you suggest that we do that? The making people aware that this is more prevalent than they think, and by the way, that they need to get tested. Well, that is a challenge. We formed Nash Knowledge three years ago. That's what we undertook as our mission, to, to try to make more people aware of this disease. And it is difficult when you engage with people about their liver, their thought immediately turns to alcohol. And, oh, I'm not a drinker. I don't, I don't need to worry about that. So that's a difficult hurdle to, to overcome. That's where we spend, while we do some things aimed at liver, existing liver patients, we, we try to spend most of our time addressing people who we think may be at risk for the disease, you know, and just the general public, people who someday may be at risk. And as you said, you know, one of the issues has, is that even the medical profession, there is a general lack of awareness that I've certainly encountered. And talking to people in our support group, for example, they've encountered when they were, you know, first told they had a fatty liver. So it, it's time I mean, we try to use social media and we're trying to ramp up our efforts on that front and just getting out there. Initially, we try to go out to public events and just engage people one-on-one about the problem and hope they they would tell their friends and you know so forth. But with COVID, obviously, there's been a lot of restrictions on those kind of activities. You would like to get out there more and do things like that. And I know here in Pittsburgh, there's something called the Pittsburgh Diabetes Club that has an annual meeting. And I've been invited to be an exhibitor this fall at their meeting. And I think that's an opportunity to, to engage professionals and a chronologist who I will try to reinforce with them the need to screen their patients or talk to their patients about liver disease. It's a tough task. I mean, if it was easy, people, I guess people would know about it. Yeah, I, I, that sounds right. So Louise, how is life different over there? 
on this issue? If so, I don't think it's any different. I think Tony described mm. it really well. I think it is a genuine lack of knowledge throughout whether it's from primary care, through medicine. And Tony and his team have spent a lot of time looking at education. And I think we do have to rewrite information and we have to rewrite knowledge, but we have to write it from a young age. So children need to grow up knowing that the liver is an important aspect to how they manage their lifestyle and their body. If you're taught to and learn how to look after your body, you're more likely to do so as you go on because it becomes second nature. Also, your parents need to know about that. When looking at Stephen's study and the other study, these are educated people who still have no awareness of a condition that is affecting them. Stephen's study particularly, that 38%. Yet these people were involved in healthcare, in a paradigm in healthcare that was being given to them by medical people. And they still had a lack of awareness. So if they have a lack of awareness, anything they're feeding their children, anything they're doing within their lifestyle actually conveys that continued ignorance. And it's not a desire to be ignorant. It's a fact that we just haven't focused on it. As I've said before on the podcast, we can come out of education knowing more about how to shape a lump of wood than we know how to look after our bodies which are there for lifestyle if we look after our bodies from a very early age if we teach people that actually could reduce healthcare costs over time now i know people will be saying oh but we want the evidence of that first well the obesity crisis has grown at such a fast rate that do we actually need to sit here and wait for the evidence to come out on that or can we assume by what we're seeing and we've already evidence-based in cardiovascular disease type 2 diabetes bariatric surgery liver disease and i can go on or do we actually take a punt and try and stop some of this occurring? Because those children who have fatty liver disease are being fed by parents who don't have the information to change it, except lose weight, exercise more, which we know doesn't work in a lot of people. Stephen and Arun did a very good summary of why that doesn't work. So I think it does have to start young. It has to start with the education because if people drive their own wellness, you can then come to a pass where healthcare only intervenes when there's a healthcare issue. The majority of people have poor liver health they don't have liver disease by finding and addressing poor liver health we can prevent liver disease but we'll also find the liver disease that's present to be able to reverse and treat if in doubt rule the liver out do not rule it in assume that it's got a component in any disease that you're looking at whether it's methotrexate use for rheumatology rule it out rule that there's no damage to the liver in that person and then move on to the next one so i suppose for me it's a double whammy we've got to go from medicine and we've got to say that in all of its common diseases let's rule it out and from an education perspective let's bring it into the curriculum for education very young then people aren't so stigmatized by it they learn about it and how clever an organ it is it's like the planets and the solar system you can really engage in what this organ does at a very early age so it is education 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 that could be the most cost effective solution in any country rich poor middle income low income middle of nowhere if you look after your liver health a little bit better but for me it comes down to education yes Louise you're really preaching to the choir with me that's that's a big focus of, of ours we have actually have developed some lesson plans to be implemented into schools curriculums to to as a starting point for this kind of thing and we have three three school districts lined up to test a, as a trial run but again COVID got in the way and we've we've been delayed in that but, but we think that's where it needs to start if the kids grow up understanding how important their liver is and how to keep it healthy you know, the parents will know about it Uncle Joni and Sue will hear about it and so will Grandma and Grandpa so that that's really where you know, we think our efforts need to be headed. I also read recently, I was looking at, there was, there was an NHS report about trying to add something into the school curriculum and it was the fact that you just needed a minimum of something like eight minutes extra exercise in primary school children to try and address 
the calories and, and you can do that between classes you could do that to stimulate them at the beginning of a class 30 seconds in each class a minute in each class concentration goes up all of the evidence that that comes with so there are simple ways to help increase exercise as well in school and that's we should be focusing on that as well all good i'm thinking about the demography and the, and the epidemiology of all that if right now we have 37 38 percent of the u.s population done two different ways with NAFLD and low teens, one out of three of those maybe NASH, and maybe one out of two or one out of three of those with NASH have at least F2 or F3. If we could resolve this problem through education in a 10 to 15 year window, get those numbers way down, the cadre of people with the problem now would still feel like a pig going through Python, a big bubble all the way through. Is the process by which you educate the people who already have disease to get themselves tested or treated and then how to resolve or ameliorate their disease or lessen it? Is that the envision as being the same education process we're talking about in the schools, or is it a completely different thing, or how would the schools play into that? I think it's a different thing in that I, that's the most effective way to reach that diverse group of people. I agree with Tony. From my own aspect, when you introduce liver health to people who've chosen to get a liver scan, they're really, really interested. Not one person has ever turned around and said, oh, I really didn't want to know that. And every single person turns around and said, if they've got fat in the liver, what can I do about that? How can I change it? And they're absolutely motivated. And I think for men's health, particularly, men really engage with something that's quite visual and gives them results more so than the women. Men don't talk about health as much as women. Men don't access healthcare, in, certainly in the UK, as common as women. There is a difference in how people respond to the information and how dynamic they want to be. Generally, I get the sense that certainly the men with higher liver fat struggle a little bit more. People in the moderate range of medium fat, they are actually really, really motivated to get that down. And everybody smiles when they know what their, their treat is or what they do that's wrong. They give it away. You don't need a lie detector. And so it's a total different mental aspect, I suppose, as to why they're doing it. You're telling them something that they need to do something about and they engage with it rather than telling them they've got an illness. Some of them have got an illness and they will go on and they will get treated and they will get assessed for that illness. But most people with fatty liver disease get referred straight back to their primary care but have taken a lot of healthcare time to get there. What we need is to get the right people to the right place and the right people at the right time. And I think that's why we've always focused on the F3s and F4s because those are the ones who've got the immediate risk in the next few years of mortality but also they've often been longest in the system so I, I think everybody's individual but I think we've got a it's a more or less a two-pronged you've got to address the ones with the more severe illness now and also educate so somewhere in the middle you will have a, a, a reduction in the system if you reduce what's coming and you treat what's here then hopefully you will see that education and the detection increase the whole argument in healthcare now is if we find it we've got to treat it and if we find it it's going to overwhelm the healthcare systems the trouble is what we are seeing is cirrhosis grow in hospitals in the UK around about by about 15 to 20 percent year on year there was a, a, a published piece last year that one in ten people in hospital in a hospital bed in the NHS have a liver condition from alcohol that's one in ten we are overwhelming the nhs but we're still not looking we're still not screening and we're still saying oh we need more evidence how much more evidence do we need and covid has just provided a real kick in the pants to be fair with the mortality that fatty liver disease confers in its association with all of the other big conditions so i think we can't rule it out and again you've got to you've just got to assess the liver i'm a woman i do breast screening cervical screening 
what's killing more people? Is it fatty liver disease and it's comorbid conditions? Or is it the conditions that we're regularly screening for? You can debate that, but I think the mortality rate with cardiovascular disease and associated other conditions with diabetes, the mortality rate that we're not recording as fatty liver disease is very, very high, and yet we're still not screening universally for it, and it's easy to screen for. We do have things like FibroScan that can tell you your liver fat. We know that simple simple steatosis is not simple, and it's certainly not benign. So when do we turn around and say that we need the FIV4, we need ELF, we need all of those non-invasive technologies, but we need something that a patient can understand. So it's got to come from all directions at the moment. Otherwise, we're under a... We are serving the National Army. Yeah, well, we are living the National Army, aren't we? And that's probably about to get a lot worse. So I guess the one other question I'd have for you for today is what do we expect to change, if anything, in this scenario over the next couple of years? You represent two impassioned sets of educators in two different places, and there are more impassioned educators. But it's a crazy world we're living in. What will it take, do you believe, for us to do a better job of getting this education out there? And how much better do you think we're going to be able to do over the next couple of years? I'm going to jump in before Tony, because I think he deserves to finish it off. If I had to be honest, I'm not too sure too much will change. All of the major players will continue and will continue to be impassioned. But until we actually take it seriously, I cannot see us changing the eat less, move more, just lose weight without assessing what's underneath the reason for losing weight and motivating people to lose weight and telling them why we're telling them to lose weight. We have an NHS strategy with over 6 million people downloading an app to lose weight without any education of what that weight does and that weight loss does to their body or their insides. We have no routine screening. We do an audit screen in a GP practice. The British Liver Trust do a fantastic Love Your Liver screener, which includes all sorts of liver disease. That's the sort of screen that everybody should be getting in primary care you come in you get your liver screen your heart screen everything but i cannot see it realistically changing because it is so siloed and piecemealed unless endocrinology and cardiology are two big players really enter the discussion and start assessing i really can't see much changing over the next two to three years yeah i think there's a couple things that could happen that would help to drive the message home. Our good friends at the Global Liver Institute are, are leading efforts to elevate discussion of liver health through policy and, and legislation. Yeah, that will help. I, I think a second thing that could potentially help is if the FDA ever approves an ASH drug, because I think that will result in more money being thrown at the problem. Yeah, right now, many of the companies that are looking to develop the medical solutions aren't spending enough money on awareness because they don't have anything to sell right now. So I think when there's a commercial reason to spend more money on on raising awareness, that will help. And then then the third thing I think would help is if there was some kind of a you know, national figure or famous person that would have the disease that will help as well. You know, we keep searching for such a person, but the problem is there are people that like that that have the disease, but they don't know it. I think this is where stigma really does play a role. If you had a Hollywood celebrity, for example, who developed severe your fatty liver disease and was not a drinker, their agents and publicists would be telling them immediately, you know, people are going to think you have a drinking problem. Do yeah. you want that? Well, that's true, true. But that's a derivative stigma issue, but I think it's a real issue. For what it's worth, Tony, I agree with that. Getting a drug approved in a human will make a huge difference. Now, it may not be the education that Louise would want 
want most because it will focus more on knowing you have illness as compared to preventing while you're well. But for a starting point, I think anything that lifts the knowledge levels is a good thing. And then people need to be clever to understand how to translate that from a, hey, you might have an illness here to, you don't have to have that illness if you did the other, these things. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. The one thing that I would want to see certainly in the UK, is that if you were a patient with liver disease admitted to any hospital, or certainly district general hospital, without a liver speciality, that you have the ability to get a gastro nurse specialist or a liver disease nurse specialist. In most hospitals, you just don't get access. But if you are admitted with diabetes, you get access to a diabetes nurse. If you're admitted with cardiovascular disease, you get a cardiovascular disease specialist. So we have very, very little parity at all to be able to help educate patients and to find them with the disease once they get there. And I'm sure Tony will agree that part of the biggest way to address your own condition is education. And it is that first teaching moment and how it's done and what it means to you that really is so vital. And if you don't have anybody in a hospital who can do that, you lose those moments. And it really, really makes it hard for us as liver specialists to treat people because they just, nobody's been able to give them the education because they haven't had access to it. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. And one thing I might add, you know, I had a re- recent discussion with a pharmaceutical company and you know what we discussed was that, you know, when a drug does get approved, it's, it's, it won't be a matter that you can sit on your couch and eat pizza and you know drink you know, sugary beverages and you're cured. It's going to have to be done in association with other actions that you take. I think that may help on the awareness front because there, you know, there will be some emphasis, hopefully, on kind of the correlation reactions that you will need to take in addition to taking a drug. Yeah, so one, one thought that goes along with that is that there are three legs to the stool of urgency about treating cardiovascular diabetes, one of which is we know exactly how they harm. The second is that we have the tools where we can track day-to-day behavioral progress, right? You can track cholesterol every week. You can tra- track blood sugar a couple times a day, uh, high glycohemoglobin, as often as you want to do blood tests. And then the third is you have uh, drugs that you can treat with O for 3 here. So the, the nice thing about the ELF approval is that while it's not for the purpose we care about most, it is the first time that a road that could be an easily accessible non-invasive test is approved to have a, a significant level of prognostic value. So ultimately, the hope is that this generation of, of uh, liquid tests will be able to meet that need for a way to test weekly, monthly, quarterly to see whether you're making sustained progress. That's more complicated with the liver because livers heal on their own in many, in some cases. But nonetheless, that would be step number one. And if you've got that and you have the drug piece, then in fact, I think the rest of it will follow because now we can tell people they've got a problem. We can track and see how they're doing with it. Fundamentally, I think what makes your struggle so hard right now is neither of those is entirely the case. I mean, Louise, it works with you with fiber scan, but you can't get people scanned more than what once a year usually? I think it depends. If you're in the NHS, you get a pre and post scan we used to do for viral hepatitis when they had their treatment so that we knew what was going on 12 weeks, six weeks, six months and a year afterwards. So we were able to track that really, really nicely. But then I'm working in a specialised unit with a lot of fiber scans. Um, if you're in the routine health, if I think if you're in an AFL pathway, it's three to five years. Now, you can do an awful lot of damage 
damage to your liver in six months and less, as we've seen through COVID. And if you're doing a weight loss program, you will want to be doing those fibro scans every month, two months, three months. Now that sounds a lot, but that's actually so motivating to see people's internal change. That keeps them on that pathway. That's the trigger that keeps you your weight down or your liver health improved because you can have to see a difference in weight loss and internal liver fat loss. You don't need huge amounts of weight sometimes to do that. You might need quality of diet. I've seen it recently massively on people who've just dropped sugar because that's without dropping too much weight, they dropped their sugar, their internal fat came down. But I think it's totally different in the world where people do it themselves for their own wellness. And then, and in some respects, that supports healthcare. That supports the health service. You're doing that and you're tracking it. And you're taking an active part in your own care and lifestyle. And that's where liver health may well sit for the majority of people informed lifestyle decision making. You can go on a bender for a long time if you wanted to with poor diet, poor uh, poor alcohol consumption and then bring it back but you know what you're doing because you're monitoring it and you'll see it. We, as simple as scales sometimes. So there are benefits that I see by being able to access people who want to take part of that key role, which is why I talk about wellness a lot. Whilst I'm also there for the illness side, the ability to change the future liver health of a population and reduce healthcare needs in a lot of people who don't need it and a lot of people who only find out way too late as i've said i've i've spent the majority of my career if not all of it dealing with a condition that causes early death and does not need to and i think if i can alter one person's trajectory then what i'm doing now is absolutely worth it so louise as your valedictory pre-birthday comment i think that one's fantastic okay tony uh do you have a valedictory pre-louise birthday <laughs> comment you'd like to yes. add nothing that rivals what louise just said but I, what what just keeps popping into my mind is that old old saying an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and and yeah and i think the message is almost as simple as that i mean you can avoid a lot of problems if there's some focus on prevention and, and i think that's the message we need to drive home so at the risk of sounding like the old baseball philosopher yogi berra another way to put what tony just said is you could avoid a lot of problems if you don't have them in the first place <laughs> too true next Wayne Eskridge joins Louise and Roger to discuss his perspective on FDA approving the ELF test as a prognostic tool for cirrhosis. So right now we're here with our good friend Wayne Eskridge, president of the Fatty Liver Foundation, and Louise is with us as well. Louise, how are you this week? I'm very well, thank you very much. Okay, good, good. And Wayne, how have you been these last couple of months? How's your summer been treating you? Oh, gosh, I've been good. Out here in Idaho, uh, we don't have the kind of challenges that you guys have been having, so my uh, summer's been a little warm, but otherwise it's good. Here, it was warm, and then, as you know, now it's been wet. As Louise pointed out, I literally got the surface tsunami yesterday. But uh, today, everything is dry, and except for the fact that some areas are without power and that there's a lot of cleanup, everything is good. So, Wayne, this episode is for us to talk with some of our favorite people about what each of you thinks is one really important thing that's happened in the past three to six months. And I know yours is a lot more recent than that. So what would you like to bring to us today that we should be focusing on? Thanks, Roger. I'm really pleased to see the FDA approve ELF as a non-invasive blood test for uh, fibrosis. It's not so much that it is the greatest test that anybody ever had, and it isn't going to answer all of our questions. There's multitudes of, of studies
reason work to be done, but this demonstrates that we are going to get to the point where we have the ability to get beyond the biopsy and to begin to deal with this disease in an earlier stage in ways that are more acceptable to the patient community. So I think that's just a huge step forward. I'm just really pleased to see that come out. What does it say to you, good, bad, or indifferent, that the indication is really prognostic as compared to being an initial diagnostic? That's really the first step we have to get through. The liver is so difficult to analyze anyway. It's a small steps kind of problem at this point. But if we can add accessible rigor to the process that the average physician can have some confidence in and we can begin to push that decision point earlier into the patient's journey, we will have benefited people greatly, even though it isn't proof positive of what you want to know. It's a guidepost, and we have so few of those that tell us very much about what the liver itself does. We think about this disease more in terms of how terrible it makes us feel so often, and we struggle with the fatigue for years. We struggle with weird symptoms for years. We have all kinds of uh, ultrasounds and CT scans, and those don't really get us to the kind of understanding that we need to have as patients in order for us to act in an appropriate way, and as well as for our physicians to come to a decision to diagnose. One of the things that I find interesting about medicine is that before you can have a diagnosis, you have to have an intent to diagnose. And with NASH today, we don't intend to diagnose it until it's really pretty bad. And so anything that swings the needle a bit in that direction is good news to me. Interesting thought. Louise, do you have any thoughts about what this does or doesn't mean? Because I'm going to try to connect some dots in a minute, but I want to let both of you guys go first. Wayne's completely right. I think anything new, and it's not new, we've been using it throughout the world for about 10 years. In Europe and the UK use it a lot, and we certainly have it in our level guide guidelines or in fact our guidelines for diagnosing cirrhosis over the age of 16 nice have used elf with a cutoff of 10.51 and those guidelines came out in 2016 so we've certainly been using it here a lot of the time the one thing it could do is add yet another test with a different cutoff point to an already muddy area of different cutoff points for different things adds level of confusion we do know that lots of people struggle to even get AST ALT which Stephen always goes on about is if you can't get anything else get AST, ALT, nearer to one, the bigger the risk. So there will be people who get confused with more and more scores and more and more add-ons and how you get access to it. But I think it's a welcome development. Wayne's also right that to get a diagnosis of any form of liver disease, you have to be looking for liver disease. The majority of liver disease, as we know, is silent. We've got an organ that regenerates, does not give us a lot of biomarkers to be able to detect that. So we've got to be wanting to find disease early. We've got to be alerting the 
public and everybody to be looking and thinking liver. Rule it out, don't rule it in. It would always be my rule of thumb. It may well be involved in nearly everything that we're looking at today and lots of diseases from dementia all the way through, obviously, to cardiovascular diabetes. So rule it out if in doubt. So I think it is that awareness that has to come up from that. So I welcome the FDA's approval because it will add that streamlining in some respects. But it'll also add a grid reference of use this, this, this or this, whichever one use a, an assessment of some format. So Louise, because you're a participant and Wayne, because I know you listen, I'm actually thinking back to the episode that we dropped last week, the one with Jorn Schottenberg, where we talked specifically about cirrhosis and the idea that cirrhosis is an increasingly attractive drug development target because based on some of the work that's been done with non-invasive testing and most specifically with MRE, it's the place where we have the ability quickly to link a KPA score in MRE to a prognostic outcome. You know that fundamentally, if your KPA is five versus eight, KPA of eight gives you 40% greater chance, I think is the number if I remember correctly, or it's 40% overall chance, I forget exactly, I'm a little foggy this morning, it's flood fog, of having a severe event within a three-year window. Now, that's helpful for diagnostics and for drug development. I'm wondering, and I don't know enough to know the answer, but I do to ask the question, whether this is kind of a parallel thing for patient treatment. Talking about the ability now, once we've diagnosed advanced fibrosis, to use an ELF score to be prognostic of progression of cirrhosis and severely mortal or morbid risk will actually help us prioritize who needs to be treated, get more aggressive about ways to do that. So what do we think the relationship might be between the push to take cirrhosis as a target for drug development and then having this prognostic tool that you can actually take into patients outside of the clinical development process just in everyday care? Using any of the non-invasive biomarkers to be able to track health is going to be welcomed, particularly in areas of advanced fibrosis. We've seen it particularly in hepatitis C. If we resolve hepatitis C, we watch, for example, fibers can come down, we improve cardiac outcomes. There's a lot of evidence in other areas of liver disease where we remove the cause and the liver regenerates and we can track that with non-invasive markers. I agree with Jean and Stephen and all of the other experts that come on here is that we can see that trend. It's been discussed at Easel this year, last year and Arzold, and I'm sure it'll be discussed at Arzold this year coming in the fact that we've got more and more evidence of using non-invasive biomarkers to track improvement in health to avoid biopsy now being an endpoint in trials. Where we cross the line with cirrhosis is we really don't want to biopsy those individuals. We can track it nicely. We can use fibroscan in ascites, but it's more complex. You'd have to go higher in the liver. You can actually even tilt the bed to get the ascites to move down unless it's loculated. I think there's lots of ways we can use techniques and I think ELF does add an extra level of protection for that. The information and the data will come out in the research studies looking for that. The more we can improve non-invasive diagnostics, the more that they should be welcomed into all studies where liver disease could be playing a part. We know that Tracy Simon's recent piece on just simple steatosis improving or increasing mortality, it was significant. These patients are in all of these other studies, whether it's cardiac, whether it's diabetes. So how do we know the liver isn't influencing all of these cardiac studies or diabetes studies? Because we're not looking. We're doing a simple blood test 
test. We're not actually looking for simple steatosis. So Kathleen Corey did it on the PROMISE study. How many people got an index cardiac event who had simple steatosis? When we talk about ELF, we're looking fibrosis. When we're talking about nephil fibrosis score, we're looking at fibrosis. We've talked a lot on the programme and Wayne said it again today. We're looking for fibrosis. Fibrosis, we know, is a major outcome indicator of liver disease, as the question is. We also have to be now looking at simple steatosis. We have two concerns in the liver. Simple steatosis is not benign. So we need to be looking at that from one aspect. Simple steatosis doesn't necessarily always progress, as we know, to NASH. So therefore, we have lots of different levels, but we need to be assessing all of those levels. And there's no real biomarker yet that can assess everything to do with both of those parameters. We need to get better at it. But we cannot simply now just say fibrosis has to be the the only focus. I think Naeem said it on this program a couple of weeks back, is that he's told patients before, you've got fat but no stiffness don't worry about it too much actually he's now changing that dialogue if you've got fat in the liver it, we need to address it somewhere even if the liver is soft and not showing fibrosis we can't pick these people out so i think elf is a definite addition and it's great that the fda have recently passed it because it's a positive sign that we're moving and the fda are moving to non-invasive markers of choice thanks louise i, I really really enjoy the talks that you guys give because you're dealing with the research but my world is one of the patient journey and the whole process of the years that it takes to really deal with cirrhosis and the NASH and to recover in any significant way from that is a tough, tough journey. And we need to be able to monitor that whole process and things like ELF from a serious cirrhosis point if you can measure some progress so meaningful to patients to be able to see some progress, some positive reinforcement that the things that they're doing have meaning because you don't necessarily feel better in a short time. And a short time with liver disease is six months or so. I think that those are kind of things that uh, are good harbingers of the future that have benefit beyond the question of the research issues. So as we get more knowledge about how we can measure the liver dynamic, I think we'll improve that and that will be hugely important to the patient journey. And I agree with Louise about the steatosis issue because the very idea that a significant amount of fat is just benign, just I find at this point in my life, I think that's just a crazy thing to say. But I'm really pleased to see the movement towards viewing that as a maladaptive process that needs to be managed before it becomes something that really impacts the organism. Wayne, let me ask you a question about your own experience. You, you made the point that it takes a while after diagnosis to actually start to feel better. In your case, how long did it take after you received your cirrhosis diagnosis and started working on your diet and everything else to actually feel the difference in your day-to-day quality of life? or sense of life? I was probably faster than most people because my wife and I were able to just flip the switch. When the doctor explained it to us and and we had our teachable moment when we understood what we were up against, that day changed our lifestyle. We actually went home, we cleaned out our pantry and our refrigerator and we started in a new life. Most people are unable to do that. So our course was 
pause quicker, I think, is typical, but it still took three or four months before I could say that it had made any difference at all in the way I felt day to day. And it was six months before I could start to say, yeah, you know, this was a this was a good idea. From your experience in talking with others, what sounds like the more typical experience? I'll ask Louise, I'll ask you the same question. There are people who feel some benefit really quickly because it depends on how ill you are. It, it depends on exactly where in this tipping point you find yourself. There's certainly a period of time where a, a small change can feel pretty good pretty fast. But if you're further out on the limb, it's going to take you longer. So it's a very individual kind of response. But most people will sense something within that six-month time. And a more typical report is they'll talk to you positively after a, a year or so for a lot of people. Wayne, can I ask you, what was the first thing that you can recall noticing improving? Was it your sleep? Was it mood? Was it energy levels? What for you was the first thing that you thought, ah, that's a lot better today than it was two or three months ago? I very quickly lost 20 pounds and I was amazed that I actually just felt better. My mood was better. I was able to negotiate life more easily. We gain weight minute by minute. We add these fractions of a bit to ourselves. And over the years, we normalize feeling less well. We forget how it was when we didn't feel that way. And so it creeps up on us. And when you make a change like that and and you make a significant difference in just the weight that you're carrying over a period of time that is short enough that it sticks in your mind, you can really sense that. And that was the biggest thing for me as I was just a typical American fat boy. I didn't realize it. You know, I thought I was perfectly normal, and and here I was carrying around 50 or 60 pounds more than I should have. Excellent. And and to be fair, when I have people talk to me, that's what they notice more. They notice their energy levels, they notice their mood changing, and they sleep better. They're the three key aspects. You're not going to break the Olympic records, you're not going to do anything on that, but as you say, the quality of life that improves with just those changes over that period of time just keeps people improving. Wayne said it earlier, you need something to keep motivated. Just each one of those gives you that momentum the improvement in the L score, improvement in your fibrous gain, improvement in your Fib4 everything, you take all of those small wins because they build to big wins in the end and that's what the time and commitment's about and that's why adding Elf to this now is just a, another level that can help. So let me play skeptic slash devil's advocate one of the challenges with a lot of the non-invasive tests used in a vacuum is the high level of false negatives and the problems around positive predictive value, much better rule out tests than rule in tests. So that what we wind up doing is telling people that they have disease that they might not have. How do you think that affects any of this transaction? How the physician looks at it? How the patient looks at it? I'll take that question first because then I wouldn't like to hear Wayne's thing. I think from my perspective, I would rather investigate something and prove it's nothing than not investigate something and it becomes an issue. The chances are low. Certainly from aspects like fibre scan, it's got a really good negative predictive factor and for the, I think it's 97, 98% of saying that you've not got significant damage. However, if you then, and if you take the old machines, they only ever had kilopascals. 
they didn't have cap. Right. I'd rather know somebody's got a low fat level and a low stiffness, to be fully sure. But I would certainly never ignore, which has happened, because cap was invented for a reason. It was there to give us an insight into the fat content of a liver. And it may not be as a dynamic fat fraction, 5% very accurate, but it certainly gives us a good gauge to be able to do a teachable moment and a life-changing time with somebody. And it is that. If I can't change somebody's... If the softness is there, but the fat content's high, there's a learning opportunity. There's a teaching moment. There's that change moment. Because that fat is only going to get bigger if that's been there. But 9 out of 10 people reduce their fat levels, irrespective, once they've had those scans. I would rather err on the side of caution and keep everything lower and within the acceptable parameters for CAP and kilopascals and take that risk than not investigate something that might then go on to be a problem. For the minority of that times that that's going to happen, I'm going to say, I'm terribly sorry. We went on, we investigated, and we've proven that our concerns were unfounded. That is so much nicer to say. And every person that I've ever been present with where a doctor said that or we've said that has really said, oh, fantastic, thank you, but thank you for looking. Nobody's ever said, oh, I don't, I didn't want you to look, or, oh, it's a shame you spent all of that time and effort on me and gave me that value. It, it, is show, it shows value that you're concerned about somebody's health from a health perspective. But I'd love to hear Wayne's <laughs> thought on that. Gosh, Louise, that is, that was very, very nicely put. I absolutely love the idea that I have a very solid rule-out test. And if I have some ambiguity on the top end. All that does is it allows me to ask more questions. The thing that we hear so often in the patient community is, I looked in my records and they said I had fatty liver 10 years ago and nobody ever told me. Why didn't anybody ever tell me? And it is so harmful to people's perspective of the care that they've been receiving from their physician to realize that they could have learned something about their situation much earlier and, and been able to perhaps do something about it. So absolutely, give me a really good negative evaluation and work with me if there's some questions about whether I may or may not actually have that. And, but make it clear to me. You know, that's part of the job the doctor has is to have people understand the merit of the test and the value of the information that it provides so that people don't get false fears out of the higher test. It's good to leave ambiguity on the top if you can be absolutely clear on the bottom. That makes sense. That makes excellent sense. Okay. Hey, so this has been a great session. Is there anything else, Wayne or Louise, you'd like to add on this particular topic? I could be controversial in oh, the fact, it. which you may or may not want to keep in, but you, I could be controversial because Stephen's not here, in the context that when you use an excuse like, we don't want to alert the false positive, then you're cop out of investigating something that may well be something really important. We should never opt out of going that extra mile for any individual. Donna's always been right. You treat the person, not the condition. So when we opt 
opt out by saying we don't want to use the false positive and we're using that minority as our excuse not to investigate, then I, I get concerned about patient welfare and where we're cutting the line about saving money or not being cost effective because they are the minority. Yeah, the concern that I have, at least the degree that I have one in practice, isn't what happens when you put this tool in the hands of people like you or Stephen. It's when you ask people who don't have a commitment to the disease to integrate it into their diagnostic process, and they take a look and what they learn is they're going to get all these false positives. By the way, I don't have a drug anyway. That the combination of those two might actually serve to demotivate the practitioner. And and by the way, I mean, it's good news that you don't get patients who say, wait a second, you told me I have this and now say I don't, because that would be the ultimate demotivator, right? Stephen's thing about one anecdote is worth uh, how many Nijim studies? One anecdote of a patient saying, you told me I have this and now you're telling me I don't. And that's confusing. And I'm disappointed or I'm angry and frustrated. Well, if that doesn't happen, that's huge. My question is more practitioners. Yeah. And, and to be fair, we're dealing with liver disease. We're dealing with probably the world's biggest disease of late diagnosis and inability, therefore, to treat it. Mm-hmm. So 75% of all end-stage liver disease is picked up and it's untreatable. 55% of it is picked up in the emergency room over the age of 50. So we have missed a lot of opportunities because it's not an organ that tells us. So therefore, to use any cop-out to investigate something that leads to a terminal illness very quickly, and yes, I've been personally affected by that, less than four weeks from diagnosis to death um, with my father-in-law recently. So you just can't use it as a cop-out. So if you want to say I'm controversial on that, I am, but I think we treat the person. Louise, if you were never controversial, we wouldn't keep having you with me every week. I usually allow it to be Stephen. Well, so, Wayne, what would you like to be your closing thought on this? I guess I would like Louise's comment because I think that's a failure, absolute failure of the medical community to take a position like that and to simply decline to be knowledgeable in the area that they're supposed to be experts in. And that, I think, doesn't uh, speak well for medical education or the adherence to the, to the principle of of what the relationship between the physician and the patient is. We, we hire doctors to protect our lives, not to allow us to become profitable medical events in their life. And I think that they owe us a better performance of that. And if the cop-out, as, as she was saying, is their approach, then I think they have failed in their job. So for what it's worth, skepticism aside, I, I tend to agree with that. Where I come from, improvement is directional and non-continuous. So if you can get something that's better than what you got right now, take it, figure out how best to use it appropriately, but accept the idea that if it's better than what you have, then it's worth doing. And then from there, get better and get better and get better because knowledge is incremental over time. But if, if you don't take those first steps because you say, gee, that's not good enough, then you're going to wind up sitting where you were because you never get started. I'm going to congratulate Wayne on something there. You work in a private healthcare system. So Wayne is actually right. The person who presents to the doctor employs the doctor. So therefore, it's it's the opposite way around here. We have a national health service. So therefore, Wayne is completely correct in his assessment there that they should be working for the person who is hiring them. And that is actually the person who's presented at that front door. And I don't think we've ever said that in the programme before. You know what? I don't think we have. No, but we have said that, we, that medical and nursing and that come from a parental role where it's been portrayed in history throughout the decades and millennia. But actually, Wayne has just reversed it and put it on his head. Finally. 
Donna Cryer joins Roger one-on-one to discuss advances in non-invasive testing more broadly. Hi, so we're back with Donna Cryer. I say back with because Donna was with us for our most recent episode and a couple other times this summer. I also say back with because while this week is a series of interviews and will not have personal and professional bests, my personal and professional best for the week was that Donna and I actually had lunch in person on Wednesday, the first time we had ever met face-to-face, despite having spent, I'm going to casually guess, 40 or 50 hours on the phone over the past year. So that was a great experience. And Donna, fun having lunch with you and great to see you this morning in your uh, Peloton get up at your vacation location. (laughs) Thank you. It was great to meet you in person. So let's dive in. What we've been asking some of our favorite patients and patient advocates to do is to talk about what you consider the biggest story of the summer that we've not discussed yet. One news item or the one story, if you will, the one advance that will have the most impact on the field are easels updated guidelines on non-invasive technologies, non-invasive tests for the evaluation of liver disease severity and prognosis that were released just the first day at the beginning of the easel meeting. And as we have always identified liver biopsy, particularly as as percutaneous liver biopsy as, as currently done, or rather historically done, as the rate limiting factor for the field in NASH and created our Beyond the Biopsy campaign around that. When we look to test the effectiveness of that campaign, are we making progress? Are we moving the needle, perhaps pun intended, on the cultural expectations around use of biopsy, on the guidelines and rules around biopsy versus non-invasive technologies, and on the clinical adoption of non-invasive technologies? I think we are making progress on all three. So, and the easel guidelines being such a huge step forward in recognizing that non-invasive diagnostics really are and should be the standard of care in NASH with some provisos still as we continue to develop the evidence and develop the technologies. But this formal recognition and their updated clinical practice guidelines, I think, is a real milestone on this road to get beyond the biopsy. All right. So at the risk of asking you to go into more detail than you're comfortable with, can you play some of that forward, elaborate on what you think it means today and how it might roll out over the next six months, 12 months, two years, pick your time frame. Sure. It's been a very fascinating process for me as a patient and as a patient advocate across the past few months in in particular in several settings. And even though I've done policy professionally for longer than I'd like to admit, perhaps closing it on 25 years or so, the interplay and the the timing between medical practice, uh, medical society guidelines, regulatory uh, decisions, even how other advisory committees weigh in, the sequencing of those and the impact of those on those different stakeholder groups and and decision makers and, and policymakers of different definitions has been fascinating to appreciate in in greater detail. And that applies for the work that we were doing in, in vaccinations, um, as well as what we've been seeing here in non-invasive diagnostics and understanding who needs to go first. So it's it's not just a matter of doctors want need to start using it. It really is the sequencing of technology being available, evidence being generated, physicians starting to use it, medical societies creating the guidelines. So um, those sort of late adopter 
um, physicians and systems feel more comfortable to use it so that payer structures change so that the incentives are, are aligned to use it. And then hopefully the regulators' decision-making will change around the use of biopsy in not only clinical practice, but in, in research setting as well. And so being a part of those of those conversations as a patient, you know, I feel very privileged to be so and to be able to, to weigh in and to see how this goes and better understanding the reluctance of certain parties to not act until other parties have played those roles. And so I think these guidelines will really accelerate the number of physicians have wanted to rely on non-invasive diagnostics, have wanted to get beyond the biopsy, but are in health system settings and tied into quality measures and others that need to follow the guidelines. And so when the guidelines change, I think it really liberates a lot of clinical practice to fall in line with what doctors have been saying for quite a while needs to be done. I also think that it is an important signal to the regulators that the ground on which they are building their insistence that biopsy remains a part of clinical research is crumbling on both aspects these guidelines changing and recognizing the prominence of non-invasive diagnostics and the role that the and the multiple roles that they play is really significant. Okay, so noting that I'm not taking notes, so this is all out of memory. If I think of this as a cascade of events, this is where I get to. First, technology, which I guess we would say at this point is adequate or good enough, but hardly what it's eventually going to need to be. Much better on rule out than rule in. Right. And eventually we'd have to get better on rule in before we really were in a place where we were confident that it was completely adequate. Right. The recommendations say that non-invasive fibrosis tests should be used for ruling out rather than diagnosing advanced fibrosis in low prevalence populations. But they should be preferentially used in patients at risk of advanced liver fibrosis and not in unselected general populations. So I think even that distinguishing how they're used in low prevalence populations, or at least as we understand them today based on various risk factors, it really shines that spotlight and differentiates that that use case. And I think when we've seen things like Masri's, you know, paper on, on cost effectiveness um, of non-invasive diagnostics in, in uh, diabetic populations, it, you know, it speaks to to things like that. So that was, where, that was where I was going to go next, which is you need to have places where the data that's been generated is adequate to support the case. Taking two forms. Number one is you need enough data to prove the benefit of the tests. So there are tests now that have recently come to market where the people who developed them claim they might have pretty good positive predictive value, but the data just aren't there yet to support that. The second set of data is what you talked about, data generated by people like Mazen, to suggest that you actually have situations right now where you're improving the healthcare system by using the tests on the ground today in the world as it is, no approved drugs, et cetera. Are there other data sources? A, are those right? Are, are those two both important to critical in the long run. Yes, I think that absolutely developing the evidence of the specific use cases is truly important. What I really have loved to that I'm starting to see in this space is that we are addressing the evidence generation to 
solve specific problems, to actually answer specific questions that matter in practice. So if our issue is how do we use it for use tests for diagnostic purposes, let's study that. If the issue is how can we distinguish between different stages of disease, let's study that or treatment response. And so rather than just sort of a general let a thousand flowers bloom, we are being much more intentional in terms of understanding what are the barriers in the space, what are the problems that we have, what are the questions that we need to answer, and let's do studies that answer those questions so that when we're talking to payers or regulators or others, we have a very strong, data-rich story to tell. So not to make too fine a point of this, but when Donna says, let a thousand flowers bloom, she is using the eloquent, gracious, and G-rated description for what the PG-13 would be, throw lots of slop at the wall and see what sticks, and if you change the word slop, you kind of move over to the reality of what we're talking about. I, I think that's a pivotal point. We talked a couple of weeks ago with Jorn Schottenberg, an episode you weren't on, but I know you've listened to, about cirrhosis and the idea that cirrhosis may be a more fertile place for drug development right now than advanced fibrosis. It's really for two reasons. Number one being you can prove outcomes relatively quickly given the path of disease from compensated cirrhosis diagnosis all the way to a bad event. So you can relatively quickly prove out what you've done. FDA will not accept biomarkers for cirrhosis. They've already said that. So at any rate, you can get a faster approval and it's not a conditional approval. And the second thing, Stephen was particularly highlighting the work that Alina Allen and then separately later Mazen have done on the ability in MRE to use KPAs as predictive of a relatively short run outcome for compensated cirrhotic patients. So you've now met a couple of your criteria, right? You've got specific data against an endpoint that matters where you can trace it back to real life outcomes as compared to merely hypothesized outcomes. I think that was the guts of the episode. And then right after that, FDA approves ELF as a prognostic test for cirrhosis. Can you do me a favor? Can you fit the ELF test into that picture and then talk about what it doesn't do as well as what it does do? I can. One, I am very excited that our, and our being the community as a whole, as well as GLI specifically in our in our uh, policy and conversations with, with FDA and other regulators, I feel has borne fruit in that they recognize how important the diagnostic side is to the drug development side. There have been a couple of essential and consistent points, nothing if not consistent um, and, and, and a little bit persistent in, in things. But wanting FDA to appreciate that to properly evaluate NASH, you needed to not just house it in hepatology, it needed to involve cardiovascular renal for the lipids and, and, and other expertise. It needed to involve the device side because diagnostics were still were such an important uh, part. And so I think the, the approval of the ELF test is important for the test itself and, and for what it can do. It's important because you know, we want to make sure that we are keeping in step with what Europe is doing to Traditionally, uh, the U.S. has led uh, as a regulatory body, and I, I'm not sure that we're there right now in this area. And so I think it's excited that, you know, we want to rise rise to that challenge and looking at Nash holistically, that all these pieces have to be in place for us to really address this disease. So that's part of it. I do think that looking at cirrhosis, so the first part of your conversation and in looking at cirrhosis versus other stages of the disease is logical. It, it makes sense because of how sick the patients are. It makes sense in terms of the ability to show a meaningful clinical change that's difficult at, at earlier stages. And 
Also, thinking forward, if I put on my, if I were a drug developer hat, thinking forward of getting a drug paid for, I have to demonstrate that there are some costs that I'm saving, that there's some value I'm adding to the system. And cirrhotic patients are, because so few patients get advanced early, they're diagnosed at often very late stages and in cirrhosis or needing cancer or transplant. And so that is the most data that we have in advanced chronic liver disease, advanced cirrhosis. So you can quantify the effects that and savings that you have on the system to be able to create some type of model for price, but you know that better than I do and better than most people as well. I do, however, feel that while that can go first and be prioritized and it makes sense to get something through the door, to get something out there, which causes a you know cascade of events and, and attention and energy, there needs to be a solution for every stage, whether that's a drug or more intensive lifestyle therapy or bariatric surgery or a host of other things. We're going to leave no baffled and NASH patient behind. And so there does need to be a solution for every stage. So it is insufficient for the field to say, well, we're going to solve for cirrhosis and then our job is done. It is not. That can be the first approach to, to get over the threshold, but you cannot consider it, you know, mission accomplished, job done. There needs to be a solution for every stage of NAFLD and NASH patient. I agree with that. I think if you toss that statement to Stephen and Jorn and Louise on the cirrhosis podcast, they would have agreed with that. With about the same level of firmness, virtually vocal militants that you just said it. The point being that is a cleaner commercial path to get to market and will dramatically broaden the kinds of experiments and testing that people can do to figure things out because you'll now have approved drugs. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. As you and I have commented on different occasions, journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And whereas previously it had been thought that F2, F3 was the easiest first step, it might not be. And to me at least, help me if I get this wrong because I'm still a relative rookie at this stuff. What the ELF approval says is that you now kind of have the battery of tests that you need approved at least, um, for a thoughtful look at cirrhosis in an individual patient. The one caveat, though, is that people with cirrhosis are very sick. They have a higher rate of dropping off of trials of any length because they need to be transplanted or um, have cancer or unfortunately die or just get too sick to participate in a trial. And so you have to be cognizant of that in terms of your recruitment and retention strategies and really thoughtful and working very closely with the FDA about the expectations for the length of the trial so that you can have patients who just physically or physiologically can last long enough to stay in it when you're dealing with a population that's so Yeah, sick. power calculations and the variability and all that starts to change pretty dramatically in stat, in, stat, in stat speak. And yeah, I think that's all correct. I was kind of on a different question, which is you can almost start to see a framework for treating patients that you suspect have, say, compensated cirrhosis or at least being able to try those patients and stay with them or at least understand how to do initial prognosis of immediacy of risk without having to do biopsy. Yes. Right? Absolutely. And 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 that's new. Yes. It's what we have been asking for and moving toward. This may not be a perfect analogy, but as most of our listeners know, I, I have inflammatory bowel disease as well as living life post post liver transplant. And so sometimes I'm you know approached in the in the course of uh, of the care across my many ologists with a test for blood in stool or occult blood, fecal blood tests. And, and, uh, and I'm like, there's no need for that. It's not a cult. <laughs> I, can, I can see it. That, that's the, there's no need for that test. And so I think when you have patients as sick 
as people are with cirrhosis, if they're having ascites and varices or they're yellow um, or, or whatever, I'm like, I don't, I don't need to do a biopsy on you wow. to, to tell. I wow. even just as a very experienced liver patient could walk into most rooms and being like, you, yes, have cirrhosis. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole host of things that we need to start doing for you without having to biopsy. Certainly with the array of serum imaging and an AI that we have at our available, there's, there's, there would be no need to puncture that patient and have the risks of bleeding or elsewhere that that, that that they would be subject to. So, All right. I think that that's obviously right. So going back to a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. This is a single step, not to be confused with the first two miles of the journey. Yes. I look back to like the Roth Investor Conference and the Game of Thrones battle and being told on that stage, you know, all but patted on the head, Donna, we'll need biopsies for another 10 years. And my postulation that we could get beyond the biopsy in a rather succinct or constrained time frame, and that should be our expectation for the field, was openly challenged. I won't say mock, but openly challenged. And when I look at the pace of which we have changed in attitude, thank you, Dr. Raju, <laughs> you know, in language and clinical practice now in these guidelines. And there, I even looked today on, on the website for the training qualifications. So as we look to the future of hepatology, at least of transplant hepatology fellows, before they had been required to have 30, experience doing 30 uh, liver biopsies, percutaneous liver biopsies, and then it changed to 20. And rumor is that they may, even that 20 may be dropped or or eliminated. And so when you look at what skills are valued or what the expectation from the field is that, that hepatologists would be able to do. Now, certainly radiologists or others, you know, may be involved in doing some biopsies, but it does speak to a future where the expectation is that biopsy is very rare. And so that's where we've been, been moving. And I think we're moving very quickly, but in a very smart, informed, and engaged way. One more thing I want to cover today, which is what the ELF approval does mean, but also I'm a little concerned that people will overstate its breadth or importance or will recommend that it immediately get used in ways that might not be quite as helpful. Am I being um, nervous and elderly about this, or is there reason to think that that might happen? The ELF test certainly has a lot of advantages, but I think it is still too early. As much as I would love to say there's like one test to rule them all and to be able to go back to the American College of Physicians, you know, internal medicine, family practice, and just say, we have solved it. That question that you asked me early on when I first approached you about, is there, you know, just one simple test that you can put into practice and it's going to answer all the questions and solve all the issues and fit perfectly into clinical workflow. And then we can just, again, you know, wash our hands and, you know, and be done and, and put it through. I would love to be able to say, we've got it. This is it. I don't believe that's the case. I think there's still more work to be done. I think that there are other tests that have um, advantages to them as well. And this curation, this sort of narrowing down is very important. It gives us a chance to do what we said a few minutes ago, which was to test you know, do some studies with these specific tests now out of a, you know, a narrower, smaller, more curated group to see how clinical workflow can progress in the different use cases that we have in terms of distinguishing NAFLD from NASH, distinguishing stage, distinguishing treatment response.
not there's still a solid number, a few of the serum-based tests, there are a few um, of the imaging tests that are emerging, there's AI, and then there's even just, uh, you know, I do appreciate improvements in biopsy itself, you know, smaller needles and, and things like that when, when the times that there does have to be biopsy. So that's how I see the field right now. And I think it's really fantastic and to be able to do pilot programs and test cases of both clinical productivity and workflow and how, how they work in the, in the health system, as, as well as use for purpose for the specific tests and, and outcomes, how they help support the provision of care will be great, will be great to see. But no, I don't, I don't believe it's the be all end all yet. And we can just sort of stop looking or testing and, and, and thinking about you know, how this should be done. Maybe in two directions, one being the breadth of what that indication was, approval was, and the second being, as you pointed out, the other tests, you've used the phrase one ring to one, one test to rule them all on several occasions. And going back to my own love of Middle Earth mythology and having having read Tolkien more times than most people have seen the movie, having one ring to rule them all might be too much for a liquid biopsy, just as it was for the accumulated power of Middle Earth. So I think this is really a massive step. And as I say, when you put that together with some of the MRE data, you start to understand how you can do things at pivotal points for not only research, but actually for lay patients without having to worry about biopsy. I agree with you. I think at this moment, I appreciate your reverence for data and solid research and multidimensional thinking about that stuff more than ever. This is a long episode, so I'll keep the business section brief. Our listener numbers keep getting better. By the time all the numbers had come in, the cirrhosis episode's total weekly download count became our best ever, not second best. Four weeks ending after episode 44, discussing COVID-19 and the Delta variant with Donna Cryer last week, was our highest four-week total ever, surpassing the previous record set just the week before. And over the past five weeks, any two consecutive weeks have gotten more downloads than any month in 2020. And the beat goes on. Our pod status news. Thanks, Macedonia. As Grace said, thanks, Macedonia. Last week for three days, Surfing the Next Tsunami was on podstatus.com's list of the top 200 podcasts in Macedonia total. That means we competed with the TikTokers, politicians, musicians, comedians, self-helpers, all that, and we're in the top 200. Whoever listens to Macedonia, thank you so much. Amazing. Simply amazing. The questionnaire schedule was sacrificed to the weather demons. Posting the questionnaire fell victim to illness and storm. If we do not have another major weather break here in the northeastern U.S., look for them next week. And with that, I want to thank all our favorite patient advocates, Louise, Donna, Tony, Wayne, for some great conversations, Riverside FM for recording, Buzzsprout for distribution, and our excellent new editing app, Dispatch, for making my life easier, and of course, the surfing crew, particularly uh, Mike and Eric, who are fantastic this week. We will post the next episode, the interview with the KOLs, next Wednesday, September 15th. So until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website.